Before we start, let me pray. God, thank you for uh, this time of worship that we've had. Um, thank you for continuing to lovingly supply everything that we need for life and for godliness. And now, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would do a, a great work here in each of our hearts this morning. You know where we are, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we need to hear in order to be drawn with cords of love. Um, you know what rebuke, what encouragement needs to be supplied here. So we entrust ourselves and our time in your word fully to you. And we do so confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, we spent just a, just a few minutes looking at what Paul meant in chapter 4 when he said, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They, they want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. And what I suggested was when Paul points out that the Galatians' affections for him had waned, um, what had occurred, in my view, very likely, was this. Legalistic teachers had come in and ingratiated themselves with the people of the churches in Galatia with flattery and gossip. So it was some combination of, you're so wonderful, but Paul doesn't really want to tell you the whole truth about the gospel. So they made much of the people in the churches at Galatia, but they did it at Paul's expense and unbeknownst to the individuals in those churches at their expense too. So the fact is when a pastor or a teacher in Christianity has rejected the gospel in favor of anything else, but especially legalism, they do, they do, whether consciously or unconsciously, begin to prevent other people from apprehending the gospel as well. I'm not saying that all mistaken or confused teachers are trying to keep people from knowing Jesus. I'm saying that those who have rejected the gospel, yet insist on making their living behind a pulpit or a lectern, what they really want is to keep everybody else from apprehending the gospel too. This is usually done by insinuating that they alone possess the true gospel. They alone are the standard bearers and all others are compromisers and charlatans. The legalistic false teachers specifically will make much of you by replacing the simplicity of the gospel with a gauntlet of rules and regulations. Let me say that again because it shouldn't make any sense. A legalistic false teacher will make much of you by replacing the simplicity of the gospel with a gauntlet of rules and regulations. Think about it like this. Which is easier to measure? Which of these things is easier to measure? Relationship or rule keeping? Performance takes the place of communion in the legalist's church. Because performance is a much easier thing to measure than relationship. Performance is a much easier thing to measure than relationship. 
Performance is also a much easier thing to flatter than what kind of walk with God you have. So a false teacher can present himself as the standard bearer, imply that he is concerned about making sure that holiness gets maintained. A false teacher can thereby heap weight on the heart and soul of a church, insisting that they keep that holiness and thereby crushing the vitality and blessing of vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Fascinatingly, though, what this false teacher wants is everybody in his congregation to adore him, not Jesus. So they're often found driving wedges between friends. They're often found implying that every other teacher is flawed and then identifying every flaw in every other teacher or preacher. These people are usually hypercritical, hypersensitive, quick to condemn, and the purpose of the behavior is simple. They want you to think much of them. They want to shut you out from the gospel because as they have rejected it, they don't want you to apprehend Christ by faith either. So in Galatia, these false teachers had slipped in flattered the Galatians with compliments, and then slandered Paul. And my primary point last week was this. Beware of the slavers. Watch out for those in Christianity who will try to captivate your attention and capture your soul so that they can put you into bondage, into legalism or license. This week, what we're going to do is close out chapter 4 with another look at the difference between relationship and legalism. And if you're concerned that I keep talking about legalism, if you look at chapter 5, about midway through, we're going to start dealing with license as well. And my contention from the beginning of our work in Galatians has been that as Christians, we are called to a path of life and obedience. On either side of that path of life and obedience are two chasms. On this side, you have the chasm of license, which is I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter because God will forgive me for Christ's sake. So we take license with the gospel. We take license with the grace of God and sin flippantly and flagrantly as though it doesn't matter how we act. That's a place your soul will go to die. On the other side, you have the chasm of legalism, which is let me set up a whole bunch of rules that I can maintain and force everybody else to maintain by which I might bring God into my debt. So legalism can be as simple as I did my devotions, God has to bless me. Or as complicated as any number of uh, attire and food regulations. So we're going to get into license if you're worried about it. But Galatians 4, beginning at verse 21, we're going to take this in more or less one big chunk because I only really have one point. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, 
Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to spirit, so also it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. There's a lot here. And in fact, the vast majority of commentators believe that this is the most difficult passage in all of Galatians to properly interpret and teach. You got two covenants, two mothers, two mountains, two sons, flesh and spirit, directives to cast aside this poor slave woman. This, I mean, there's a lot on the surface. But underneath, I think Paul is trying to say something really simple. So let's go back and look at Genesis 15. Try and get a little bit of context and understand. Bearing in mind that Paul is saying this can be interpreted allegorically. Oh, and can I just pat myself on the back and encourage you all to take note? Because if I ever do this, you should flee. I do not read the scriptures and interpret them allegorically. This is not a bunch of Aesop's fables that, you know, we're going to learn about how David slew Goliath. And here's how you can slay the dragons in your life. That's not the purpose of the word of God, but Paul could do it because he was an apostle and he was still writing the word of God. So we'll, we'll follow along as he interprets Genesis 15 through 21 allegorically. We're going to read all of that. Just kidding. <laughs> Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my home is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him is righteousness. We've looked at this before. I'm not going to belabor the point. Abram is 75 years old at this point, and his beautiful wife, Sarah, is 65. Um, I checked. I mean, if you can believe this stuff, and I don't know if you can. I mean, I used to believe a lot more of what was on the internet <laughs> two or three years ago. Now I don't anymore. But I checked, and um, According to historical medical records, the oldest woman known to have conceived and birthed a child naturally. Okay, so we're putting aside IFV and all those hormone treatments and things like that. Naturally, the oldest woman ever to have conceived in modern medical history was 57. And I, I mean, I find that a little hard to believe, right? All those of you who have crossed the threshold into postmenopausal status, uh, know that it, it's not likely that Sarah was going to conceive and bear a child, right? Yet Abram believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We said uh, 
as often as we could say it, justification, the one-time declaration by God that a sinner is righteous, justification is by faith and not works. So Paul referenced this. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I'm not doing that. I'm referencing it because we need to understand what he's interpreting allegorically. So what I need you to focus on is it's impossible for Abram and Sarah to have children. It's impossible. Look at Genesis 16, verse 1. Now, we're just going to say, I'm going to say Sarah and Abraham. It's just going to happen, all right? Their names haven't changed yet. Uh, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar or Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So keep a finger there. Jump down to 15. Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is understandable, right? Hagar was a young woman. Of course she got pregnant. Um, but before that had even occurred, look up at verse 4. So we're jumping back up to verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she started thinking she was better than me. She looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai or Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. If this like, man, the Old Testament is full of husbands passing the buck, isn't it? <laughs> Starting with Adam. Behold, your servant is in your power. I do whatever you want. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. All right, flip over to Genesis 17. Verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So I wanted to establish how old he now is. If he was 75 when the promise first came to him and Sarah was 65 when the promise first came to him, now he's 99 how old is Sarah? 89. I mean, less likely than before, right? Verse 15, Genesis 17, 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? I guess it's a little less believable now than it was twenty-five years earlier. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. 
But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then look at Genesis 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But check this out. Look at verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So 25 years goes by from the time of God's original promise until that promise is actually delivered. And the drama that unfolds between the giving of the promise and the birth of Isaac, Paul says can be interpreted allegorically. Well, what unfolded? What unfolded is nine years after God told them, hey, you're going to have a kid, they still had no kids. So, Abram and Sarah hatch a plan to help God keep his promises. What's the outcome? Sorrow, bitterness, resentment, envy. Hagar, the young, healthy, perky, firm-bodied gal from Egypt, gets pregnant instantaneously. Sarah... The old, barren, tired, wrinkly-skinned nomad is equally instantaneously proven to be the reason that Abraham didn't have children already. Can you imagine how that felt? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't want to take the allegory too far or put words into God's mouth, but there's a part of me that wonders when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, if she wasn't kind of hoping it would prove to be that Abraham was the one that couldn't make kids the the moment i mean they come together bam she's pregnant this doesn't bring sarah an ounce of joy nor does it strengthen the marriage not surprisingly of course she resents hagar of course she's embittered towards her husband now eventually isaac is born and no sooner is he weaned than sarah catches hagar's son mocking isaac it's a bit buried in the original text, but that's what's happening. Sarah weans Isaac, so he's probably going on two years old, and she catches Ishmael mocking him, having a little laugh at Isaac's expense. So Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. They're cast off. And how does Paul allegorically interpret all of this? Verse 24, Galatians 4. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai and Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Hagar, Sarah's servant girl, represents one covenant. Sarah represents another covenant. Hagar represents one mountain. Sarah represents another mountain. Isaac represents one reality. Ishmael represents another. And I think it's really simple. I think it's really simple. And this is where I get myself into trouble usually with my more learned pastor friends. Because not only am I ignorant, I'm stubborn. So I refuse to adopt the position of, while complex and informative, the position of the commentators. I think it's easier than that. Hagar represents a covenant of works. Sarah represents a covenant of grace. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, where the commandments were given on tablets of stone. Sarah represents Mount Zion, where God had set his name and the promise of dwelling with his people. Ishmael is the outcome of human effort. Isaac is the outcome of God's faithfulness. Super simple, right? 26, Galatians 4, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, this is all in reference not to uh, Genesis 15 through 21, but in Isaiah, this prophecy is given that while the people of God are in captivity in Babylon, Jerusalem lies desolate and by contrast is of no significance and gives every appearance that the promises of God are null and void, that he's not going to have a people from every kindred, kindred, every nation and every tribe. But the reality is God has plans for the Jerusalem, which is yet to come. He's talking about that, that which will be unified under the, the messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ. The woman looks barren, but she's going to have kids, and they're going to be more numerable than the stars. 28, you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What's that talking about? What's well, talking about that fleeting moment that almost goes right by you in Genesis 21, where Ishmael is na 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 booing at Isaac, because here's what Ishmael thinks I'm the firstborn. I'm going to get the inheritance. Nobody cares about you. How wrong he was. Because what he represents is this covenant of works. Oh. What he represents is this covenant of works that is powerless to save. Oh. Poor guy. 29. Just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Allegorically, Paul is saying there is a persecution going on in the churches in Galatia. And here's what it looks like. 
you're being flattered, you're being deceived, you're being seduced into a whole works-based righteousness system that will destroy you, and you must resist it. Even though it sounds much more noble and much more valid and much more likely and much more possible than this covenant of grace that I taught you. It makes more sense in human terms. Do this and you will live. Obey and you'll have life. Follow the commandments and you'll survive. But what does the scripture say? Verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll deal with the slave woman being cast out in just a second. But think about it like this. Paul is saying you need to throw out what you've been told about the law. Now, that sounds a bit licentious, doesn't it? Sounds a bit antinomian. But that's what he's saying. Allegorically, look what happened to Hagar and Ishmael. Apply that to your view of righteousness through works. Throw it out. Here's the question. And I need everybody to listen carefully and answer this question in your own mind. I'm going to give you a moment to think about it. How do you become a Christian? What do you do? All right, I've got 14 verses I'm going to read you to answer that question. Matthew 4, 17. Don't turn there. We won't have time. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wait, what was the question? What do you do? How do you become a Christian? All right. Mark 1.15, Jesus was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 16.16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke 13.3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. John 6.29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What's the question? How do you become a Christian? What do you do to become a Christian? Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 12.36, while you have the light, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. John 20, 31, these are written so that you may 
believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Acts 16.31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you become a Christian? What do you do? And if your answer is anything other than repent and believe, you have missed the gospel. You've missed it. What about reading your Bible? The activity of reading has never saved anyone. Now, does faith come by hearing and hearing the word of God? Absolutely. But reading your Bible is not going to save you. Believing what's in it will. What about praying? Well, I think Muslims pray more than any Christian I know. And they do not believe the gospel. What about tithing? You cannot buy the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus command us to do? Two things. Repent. Believe. That's it. Turn away from your sin. Take hold of the person, Jesus Christ, by faith. Now, this is where it gets more fun because we're talking about churches that are established and have been established for some time. Paul set them up. They were running along just fine. He left. Something happened. So here's the real question. How do you remain a Christian? Ah, this is where the law comes in. Wrong. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. I know your works. This is God talking to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay? What does that sound like? Sounds like a great church. We don't tolerate evil. We endure patiently all of the wrongs being done to us. Later on, he'll bring up the Nicolaitans. You, you hate the Nicolaitans doctrine. This is a doctrinally sound church that hates evil, that puts up with the evil done against them. This sounds like a great church, right? That must be it. That must be how you remain a Christian. Oh, wait. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. How do you remain a Christian? All right, to, be, to become a Christian, you believe and you repent. Or you repent and you believe, right? The gospel. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, you turn from your sin. That's repentance. I don't want to do that anymore. And you embrace by faith the person, Jesus Christ, and you enter into relationship with him. And then the next day, you get up, and behold, sin is crouching at the door, and Satan's desire is for you, and the world is looming over you, and your own flesh is still corrupt. And what do you need to do? You need to turn away from your sin again, and you need to take hold by faith 
of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do the work you did at first. That's how you remain a Christian. So what does this have to do with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, Ishmael? Why does Paul bring all this up? Because the inclination of the human heart is always to help God keep his promises. That we're always trying to stick our fingers into the work of the gospel and add our own little measure of grace to it. Abraham and Sarah added their works to the promises of God. That's what they did. Nine years after the promise came, they looked at each other and went, not getting any younger, not getting pregnant. Let's try this and bring, bring Hagar into the mix. What was the outcome? Slavery, bitterness, heartbreak, sorrow, jealousy, confusion, and darkness. These things are always the outcome of us trying to save ourselves through works. Always. We are not children of God by human ingenuity. We are children of promise. We are as children by his promise. We are adopted because he promised. We have a relationship with him because he promised. We are loved by him because he promised. We can sing to him because he promised. We can relate to one another with some degree of love, affection, and mutual respect because he promised. Not because we're gritting our teeth and trying hard. Listen to me. I'm begging you to believe this. White knuckle Christianity does not work. You cannot grit your teeth and try hard enough to make Jesus love you and make God forgive you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become by being in this world and made up of a fallen nature can be nailed to the cross and you can bear it no more by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. That's the gospel. Is it fair that Isaac was chosen and Ishmael wasn't? Was Isaac a better person? Was Sarah a better person? I mean, those of you who've read those chapters in some detail would have to agree. You could flip a coin between Hagar and Sarah to decide which of them is more virtuous. And I would argue Hagar, because at least Sarah was older and should have known better, right? Is there any way we can construe from the Genesis narrative that God had reasons to like Sarah more than Hagar? Were they better behaved? Were they more admirable? No. So what's the point? The point is that salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's the point. You want to be under the law? Do you know what the law says? That's how Paul starts. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you know what it says? Because here's what it says. All are condemned. All are guilty. None have any hope. That's what the law says. You want to put yourself under that? You're doomed if you do. But there's this free offer of grace and mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ who seeks by promise to draw us into relationship. I've said this a hundred times since we started in Galatians. The gospel is about bringing God's people into communion with himself. It's about relationship. I bet you, you would never admit this out loud, but I bet you I'm right. 
it is harder for you to be in relationship with God than it is to obey the commandments. When the Holy Spirit whispers, why don't you spend some time praying? Ooh, we've got a thousand excuses why we can't just now. When God says, why don't you open the word and read it? We've got a million reasons why we just can't right now or why it wouldn't do any good. When God says, why don't you go to church and be around the people of God? You, I mean, you, come on, the answer to that's easy. Because they suck. They're terrible. They're mean and nasty and say hurtful things. I don't even know if they mean to say it, but they do. And I'm tired of it and I don't want to be around them. The, the actual means of grace that God has prescribed whereby we can be in communion with him, we don't want any part of it. But laws written on tablets of stone, oh yeah, we'll do that. I mean, not, not all of them and not perfectly, but we'll do a pretty good job. And God, golly gee, he'll have to be impressed, won't he? No, no. He's calling you out of darkness into light, which means out of loneliness and isolation and bitter and envy and jealousy and self-conceit into relationship with him. Are you in relationship with your creator? That's the question. Let's pray.